This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Kate Madden, an attending in critical care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. I'm honored to welcome our speaker today, Dr. Nader Yeya. Dr. Yeya is an attending physician in the Division of Critical Care Medicine at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and an assistant professor in anesthesia and critical care at the University of Pennsylvania. His studies encompass biomarkers, clinical epidemiology, and pathophysiology mechanisms in the field of ARDS. We're so pleased to have him here with us at World Shared Practice Forum. Dr. Yeya, welcome. Thank you for having me. You've spent your early career as a prolific researcher in the fields of ARDS and sepsis. And during that time, what have you learned about the challenges to studying these diagnoses? I think one of the problems in our field has been the poor uh, specificity of our syndromes. Uh, we use consensus clinical definitions for sepsis and ARDS. Um, we have vague nonspecific criteria like the systemic inflammatory response syndrome or infection plus some degree of organ failure. Uh, we use chest x-rays for ARDS diagnoses, which are notoriously imprecise. Um, and none of these definitions really reflect the underlying pathophysiology. There's no conversation about endothelial damage in sepsis or epithelial damage in ARDS. There's no conversation about damage-associated molecular patterns or pathogen-associated molecular patterns and how they contribute to sepsis or ARDS. And I think that this is a real uh, problem for our field because imprecise definitions such as sepsis-3 uh, lead to uh, an inability to answer certain questions because they end up uh, being so nonspecific that they uh, contribute to the heterogeneity, which has plagued our trials. So sepsis-3 is the most uh, recent definition that we have for uh, sepsis. And it's, it seems to be uh, pretty good for researchers, but not necessarily sensitive enough for a screening tool, which um, definitely limits its utility. It uh, doesn't perform particularly well in resource-limited settings, which is unfortunately where most of sepsis deaths occur. And it's not as data-driven as one would hope. Um, and given that it's our most current uh, sepsis definition, then it seems to be a definition which was designed by epidemiologists for research purposes, although I will concede that organ failures are better quantified. But it still ignores pathophysiology. There's no conversation regarding um, a hyperinflammatory sepsis phenotype or a immunosuppressive sepsis phenotype, and it's still just kind of a better version of infection plus something. ARDS kind of suffers from similar problems. It was defined by adults for adults, and as a pediatrician, I'm particularly sensitive to that. Um, even though the initial descriptions of ARDS in 1967 involved two patients, um, which would be covered under pediatrics, neither the 1994 definition nor the 2012 Berlin definition really considered pediatrics at all. And they, much like the sepsis definitions, are relatively imprecise. They um, rely on uh, oxygenation, they rely on chest x-rays, and they're not particularly um, useful for reducing the heterogeneity. There's a lot of different types of kids with different types of lung disease which can get captured under these definitions. In 2015, uh, the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury Consensus Conference came up with the pediatric-specific definitions. They had some notable differences. They made unilateral chest x-ray 
uh, infiltrates instead of bilateral infiltrates, part of the definition. And they used oxygenation index and oxygen saturation index rather than PF ratios. The inclusion of unilateral infiltrate as part of the definition rather than bilateral introduces a separate problem because it could also contribute to heterogeneity because now you will just need a single infiltrate. So now suddenly pneumonia and bronchiolitis with atelectasis runs the risk of being called ARDS if you otherwise meet oxygenation criteria because the reliance on any x-ray criteria is very imprecise. So the current state of ARDS definitions is similarly problematic in that like we're relying on clinical and radiographic uh, uh, risk factors and uh, oxygenation chest imaging as part of our diagnostic criteria which does nothing to address pathophysiology or heterogeneity. And it ignores important differences between how you can end up with ARDS. You can have infectious versus sterile. You can have a predominantly endothelial injury. You could have predominantly epithelial injury. And none of this is really covered uh, by clinical definitions. We'd like to turn to you and our audience now and ask a question. We ask that you state your city and country location when leaving your comment. Is the population in your ICU similar or different to those used to define the criteria in the sepsis and ARDS consensus definitions. Very interesting. So considering the heterogeneity of these clinical syndromes that we're commonly treating in the ICU um, and our desire to study them, um, what are some ways that we may more accurately uh, categorize patients or understand um, the pathophysiology of their process? So in the last 10 to 15 years of critical care research, I think there's been a huge explosion of biomarker research. And biomarkers have been um, suggested to potentially solve this heterogeneity problem in critical care research. Um, I, think, I think a lot of our field concedes that sepsis, ARDS, and other critical care syndromes are in fact vague and poorly defined with, um, with uh, predominantly clinical consensus-based definitions. And so biomarkers could potentially be used to reduce this heterogeneity by identifying meaningful subgroups of patients. And so there's a certain type of sepsis A or a certain type of ARDS B. Um, they can also potentially be used for risk stratification. You can use them to identify low, medium, and high risk of death or duration of ventilation in a way that uh, clinical stratifications of low, medium, and high uh, may, not, may not be able to capture accurately. And perhaps the holy grail is using biomarkers to identify a specific population that is predicted to respond positively to a given therapy. So to talk about that, we have to understand the concept of prognostic and predictive enrichment. If one were to have a trial in which there was a control mortality rate of 25% and a intervention mortality rate of, say, 20%, that's predicted to be a 20% effect size, okay? Prognostic enrichment would be if we could somehow select the subgroup of that population that actually has a 50% mortality rate, and then for the same 20% effect rate, the intervention mortality rate would now be 40%. So now you're looking to identify a difference of 10 percentage points rather than five, which means that you can do it with fewer patients. Said another way, your have a prognostic enrichment increases your power to detect uh, an effect size. The other type of enrichment strategy that biomarkers could be helpful with is predictive enrichment, and this is a little bit different. Now, for the same control mortality rate of 20 percent, you could have an increased effect size of 50 percent. So now, you're picking up that same 10 percent uh, difference but you have, in fact, selected a population that is predicted to respond to your treatment, so your effect size is actually going to be bigger 
And so you are also more power to detect that difference. But more importantly, probably for patients, you're limiting your trial to the ones who are most likely to benefit. So we're saving uh, exposure to of uh, potentially risky therapy sometimes to patients who would not be predicted to benefit from this therapy. We have used uh, in our group um, biomarkers for uh, risk stratification or prognostic enrichment. So this was a study that we did with Dr. Hector Wong in Cincinnati. And a panel of three biomarkers plus age was able to risk stratify our ARDS cohort into low, medium, and high risk of mortality, shown here in the green box, the blue box, and the red box, respectively. And this was a good use of biomarkers, we thought. This was like, okay, we can more accurately uh, identify a low-risk group with 0% mortality, a medium-risk group with 20% mortality, and a high-risk group with greater than 30% mortality with biomarkers, which seem to outperform uh, clinical variables, which could have stratified them. However, my real interest is in predictive enrichment, and for that, I actually really have to look to the adults. Now, the adults have a lot more experience with this, and the adult pulmonologist and the asthma researchers are really who have uh, kind of clarified this concept for the rest of the critical care community. Asthma has true endotypes. That is to say that there's different subtypes of asthma with different underlying biology, which points to different types of therapy directed at that biology. So there's Th2 high asthma, there's Th2 low asthma, there's non-Th2 asthma. And this is not clinical subtypes. These are, these are um, this is to be distinguished from something like a direct versus indirect or focal versus non-focal uh, ARDS, or uh, abdominal sepsis versus urosepsis, or obesity-associated asthma. This is meant to imply an underlying mechanistic difference that is not clearly apparent from just clinical variables. And so that's the distinction between an endotype versus just a subtype. And biomarkers are probably the best way to identify these endotypes because they, in fact, point to mechanism. So this is a study that was done by uh, Carolyn Calfee's group. And she has done yeoman's work in our field and uh, in uh, identifying endotypes of acute respiratory distress syndrome in adults. So this is a reanalysis of um, a uh, previous trial, which was a high PEEP versus low PEEP. And they had the foresight to measure uh, a series of biomarkers uh, alongside this trial. So the original trial was negative. But measuring a series of biomarkers and doing some statistics uh, with those biomarkers plus clinical variables um, the statistics being latent glass analysis, they were able to identify two different subgroups of ARDS, okay? So this is not the two different arms of the trial. This is two different subgroups of the entire cohort uh, represented in the trial. And they called their phenotypes phenotype 1 and phenotype 2. And the way that this is meant to be read is that the variables that are higher in phenotype 2, okay, are represented uh, on the on the uh, left of this graph. So IL-6, IL-8, and TNFR1 are higher in phenotype 2. And the variables that are lower in phenotype 2 are represented on the right of this graph, like systolic blood pressure, protein C, and bicarbonate. So there seem to be a difference of clinical variables as well as um, uh, biomarkers that define these two uh, phenotypes. And importantly, phenotype 2, which they dubbed the hyperinflammatory uh, phenotype, again, this is the one with higher IL-6 and IL-8 and lower blood pressures, um, seemed, there seemed to be a differential response to PEEP, where there may have been, a, in this otherwise negative trial, a uh, potentially a beneficial effect of higher PEEP in the hyperinflammatory phenotype. There was also a signal of harm with higher PEEP in the hypoinflammatory phenotype. So this was a suggestion that, not, that we may have identified a real endotype here. We may have identified underlying biology um, with differential response to therapy. 
they were able to re repeat this analysis in a different trial, the FACT trial. Now, this was the fluid conservative versus liberal arm of the FACT trial. And they repeated their analysis with uh, a bunch of uh, biomarkers. And they again found this differential response to fluid. Again, this was a negative trial for the mortality outcome. But when you looked at it uh, as stratified by the phenotypes, subphenotype 1, the hypo-inflammatory phenotype, actually seemed to have a mortality benefit with conservative fluid therapy, whereas the hyperinflammatory phenotype actually seemed to have a mortality benefit with liberal fluid therapy. So again, we uh, found a uh, two different subphenotypes of ARDS defined partly by biomarkers with apparent differential response to therapy, suggesting that this could be a true endotype. This is the third trial. This is the HARP2 trial. This was not an ARDS network trial. This was, um, this was a trial of uh, simvastatin. And they had fewer variables to look at, fewer biomarkers to test, but they again identified two uh, subtypes, which appeared to be consistent with their previous papers, and they again look similar to a hypo and hyperinflammatory subtypes of ARDS. And in this trial, if you limited your uh, mortality analysis to the simvastatin versus placebo in the hyperinflammatory subtype, now this otherwise negative trial now suddenly has a statistically significant positive effect, beneficial effect of simvastatin only in the hyperinflammatory phenotype with no effect in the hypoinflammatory phenotype. So to summarize all the ARDS trials, okay, these endotypes have been reproduced in five ARDS trials as well as some observational studies. Um, there generally seem to be two endotypes and they generally seem to correlate with hypo and hyperinflammatory. And it starts to get a pathophysiology. So like, so we're, we're, we're almost at what the asthma people are doing. We have IL-8, we have TNFR1, we have bicarbonate. And so there's some thought that like these are real endotypes that we're discovering in ARDS with differential biology as defined in part by biomarkers. So you've told us about how biomarkers and other clinical features can be helpful in uh, defining endotypes in adult ARDS and have shown a significant impact on trial results. Um, are there any endotypes in pediatric ARDS or biomarkers that have been shown to be useful? So that's a great question. Um, pediatric ARDS is always playing a little bit of catch up to the adults. Again, the definition of the syndrome was by adults, kind of for adults, and it wasn't really until... 2015 that we came up with our own pediatric specific definition. And we have fewer trials than the adults do. So we're always extrapolating our management from the adult uh, ARDS trials. And that's not necessarily the right thing to do. A pediatric ARDS has a distinct epidemiology, not necessarily a distinct pathophysiology, although we don't really know that because nobody's really looked. But we have uh, different underlying comorbidities like prematurity. Um, we have uh, uh, different mortality and a different, uh, we have half the mortality of adult ARDS, which means that the risk versus benefit of any given therapy is going to be different in pediatrics than it is in adults. There's no reason that we should necessarily assume that something which is harmful, that is to say that the risk-benefit ratio is not beneficial in adult ARDS, would necessarily have the same uh, risk-benefit ratio in pediatrics. And so if we concede that it has a different epidemiology, and if we concede that our outcomes that we care about are different, Okay, then it's possible that pediatrics has its own separate endotypes defined by different things. And so we need to start looking at that. And in fact, uh, Dr. S uh, Neil Sapru okay, um, uh, headed up a study uh, recently published in which they measured the matrix metalloproteinase family in blood. And they found two different subgroups defined by different matrix metalloproteinase profiles. And while this was an observational study, there was no trial to test differential effects of a given therapy. They did find different outcomes for these groups, with one of the profiles having a higher mortality rate than the other one. 
in pediatric sepsis, Dr. Hector Wong has done a, a lot of work uh, identifying two different endotypes of, of uh, pediatric sepsis based on gene expression. So he identified two main endotypes, A and B, based on differential gene expression in blood. And endotype A appeared to be associated with uh, adaptive immunity, glucocorticoid signaling, and it had worse outcomes. And in an observational study, there was a differential response to corticosteroids, suggesting that these sepsis endotypes defined by gene expression may in fact be real endotypes because there, there may be a differential response to therapy. Our group, in a pilot study of 96 children, uh, uh, with ARDS was uh, looking to see if we can use gene expression to identify endotypes of pediatric ARDS. And in a pilot study of these 96 patients, we did identify three subgroups um, defined by different gene expression patterns. So in ARDS, in adults, there's this hypo and hyperinflammatory endotypes with differential response to PEEP, fluid, and symvastatin. And there's proof of concept, at least, in pediatric ARDS, but we're really in our infancy of this, okay? We're just starting to do some of the studies that the adults have done, and they have the advantage of having uh, uh, large clinical trials um, with blood collection, and so we need to start doing that. We need to start actually doing uh, large clinical trials with, with prospective blood collection so that we can, we can reproduce some of the same uh, analyses that they have done. Um, in our observational cohorts, however, there's at least proof of concept that um, biomarker and transcriptomic endotypes may in fact exist. Um, and it's really the basis for the next generation of ARDS trials as people are talking about like, you know, if there's differential response to PEEP, fluid, and simvastatin in the adult trials, then maybe future trials should actually only have tested these therapies in the subgroup that is predicted to benefit. And uh, pediatrics uh, is glomming onto that. And we're also thinking that like there's this type of predictive enrichment that we should be performing either, uh, either prior to or con uh, con um, coincident with the performance of our clinical care trials. So it sounds like this biomarker endotype-based approach to studying ARDS is really promising, um, especially um, in pediatrics. Are there any limitations or drawbacks to using biomarkers and defining this population? Glad you asked. Because when you do this work for a bit, you start to peek under the hood and you start to see a few warts. And one of the problems when you look at the adult ARDS endotypes is that they're not actually particularly specific for ARDS. So when we think back to the previous slides of the reanalyses of the adult fluid trial, the adult PEEP trial, the adult simvastatin trial, and we saw that there were differential effects based on endotype, right? However, none of the markers that were used to define the endotype are specific to the lung. They're actually innate immunity and shock markers. So IL-8, TNFR1, IL-6, bicarbonate, blood pressure, none of these are actually lung markers in ARDS trials. Okay, these are all markers of innate immunity and severity of illness. So I worry that what we've actually picked up on is a severity of illness endotype. And the therapies that were tested with differential effects, simvastatin, fluid, these are not specific to the lung either. So any beneficial effect is not necessarily a lung-specific beneficial effect. Pediatric ARDS biomarkers are kind of, unfortunately, subject to the same problem. Okay, if you look at the uh, SAPRU study, which defined uh, different subgroups of, AR of pediatric ARDS based on MMP profiles, MMPs are absolutely not specific to the lung. That is also an innate immunity marker. And if you look at the study that we did, um, in which we use biomarkers to stratify risk into low, medium, and high risk of mortality in pediatric ARDS, CCL3, HSPA1B, and IL-8 are also not 
uh, lung-specific biomarkers. These are innate immunity biomarkers. So this is also uh, subject to the same criticism as the adult studies, that these are not, the biomarkers that are defining the endotypes that we're so excited about are actually not specific to the lung, which you feel they should be for an ARDS study. Now I'll return to you in the audience and ask another question. Again, please state your city and country location while leaving your comment. What, if any, biomarkers are you using for sepsis or ARDS to stratify risk or guide treatment in your ICU? A bigger problem is that when you look at the outcomes that we care about, okay, the most common outcomes that we look at in ARDS studies are things like mortality and ventilator-free days. And and ventilator-free days, of course, being a composite outcome, which incorporates mortality as well as duration of ventilation. But when you look at what patients with ARDS die of, okay, they die of sepsis and multisystem organ failure. They die of neurologic complications. We've performed a similar study in pediatrics where we looked at the cause of death in pediatric ARDS, and multisystem organ failure and neurologic etiologies of death also predominated. So in both adult and pediatrics, 80% of the mortality in ARDS okay, is not related to hypoxemia or lung disease, okay? So patients are dying with ARDS, but not necessarily from ARDS, except in a minority of cases. This is true of longer-term outcomes also. Dr. Prescott's group in uh, Michigan also looked at uh, respiratory failure mortality versus non-hospitalized patients, and it was certainly higher if you have respiratory failure Okay, you're going to um, have worse uh, mort long-term mortality even after discharge than if you did not. But when you actually match that cohort of respiratory failure to patients who had the same etiology and the same inciting events, okay, 70% of the risk of higher mortality was explained by the inciting event and not by the respiratory failure. So yet again, we have an example where patients with acute respiratory failure, in this case rather than specifically ARDS, are not necessarily dying because of their lung injury, but because of the underlying comorbidities or the underlying insult that got them there in the first place. And that has implications for endotyping and, and how we think about these trials. So first off, we have the problem that the endotypes are probably severity of illness endotypes rather than uh, picking up distinct biology that is specific to ARDS. Secondarily, okay, we, we have the issue of, um, of the biomarkers being uh, not at all specific to the lung. And finally, we have how are we going to use these endotypes? And if mortality in ARDS and if outcomes in ARDS are not really related to hypoxemia, then interventions that are targeting hypoxemia, irrespective of endotyping, are not going to be predicted to have major effects. And none of these endotypes have been assessed for their association with uh, outcomes such as duration of ventilation, long-term lung function, or other things which don't also incorporate mortality. And so this isn't necessarily going to work uh, for any sort of predictive enrichment because, because this is not uh, the, end, the biomarkers defining the endotypes are not lung-specific, and the interventions that are focusing on the lung are not necessarily going to be predicted to have a huge impact on the outcomes that we care about. So if we take into account the limitations you brought up about uh, the use of biomarkers, um, but also the potential for real benefit in, um, in study of these syndromes um, using biomarkers, what do you see as the future for the role um, of biomarkers and endotypes in both research and uh, clinical care? I absolutely still think there's a role for biomarkers in future critical care trials. So this is one example. Uh, in the 90s, there was the Anakinra trial, or like the use of recombinant human IL-1 RA in sepsis, which was a negative trial. 
When Dr. Nula Meyer at the University of Pennsylvania reanalyzed that trial, stratifying patients by low versus high levels of their own IL-1-RA, then there was actually a mortality benefit with anakinra treatment only in the patients with a high uh, endogenous levels of IL-1-RA. So this is a good use of a single biomarker because it satisfies a few criteria. Your uh, biomarker of interest that you're stratifying your study on is actually in the causal pathway for the intervention that you're doing. So it makes sense that an activated IL-1-R access patient is going to be potentially benefited by IL-1-directed therapy. So this is, a, this is a defendable use of a biomarker for a future trial. When you look at, this is another example of a, of a potential, uh, potential use of biomarkers. When you look at the study that we did where we used three biomarkers in age to risk stratify ARDS severity, then we identified a low-risk cohort. This low-risk cohort, using these biomarkers, uh, had 0% mortality. We absolutely can use biomarkers to identify these patients and not enroll them in critical care trials. There's no reason to expose a patient with a 0% mortality risk or a very low predicted mortality risk to any sort of interventional trial, okay, Un unless if with, with mortality as the primary outcome. Okay, so, so biomarkers can still be used to do the opposite of predictive enrichment, but actually to like identify the subgroup of patients who you would consider actually excluding from trials because they're, not, they're only going to add noise without potentially adding any beneficial, uh, without, having, without being uh, predicted to have any benefit of the intervention. In another study that we did, there's a, there's a, a points to a different use of biomarkers. So we published a study which showed that responders to nitric oxide, response being defined as um, having an improvement in oxygenation by 20%, uh, had fewer days uh, on the ventilator relative to non-responders who got nitric oxide. However, there was no clinical variable which predicted nitric oxide response, but elevated angiopoietin-2 did in fact predict response to nitric oxide. So this is another potential use of a biomarker in the setting of a clinical trial, and this would be an example of predictive enrichment of like of using a biomarker to identify a population of responders. In a broader sense, I do wonder whether the best use of biomarkers is actually just to reclassify how we think of our patients in the ICU. You know, right now, like, if, if we concede that sepsis, ARDS, trauma, post-cardiac arrest are not necessarily the most specific definitions. And I do wonder if biomarkers can be used to reclassify those definitions. And here we can follow the lead of oncology. And oncology has pioneered the way of tumor agnostic therapies, you, you know, particularly in the uh, anti-PD-1 and the tropomyosin receptor kinase-directed uh, uh, therapies, where it doesn't necessarily matter exactly which kind of cancer you have, but if you have a defect in, in PD-1, then this might be a therapy which would be benefited by anti-PD-1, irrespective of the actual histologic diagnosis of your tumor. And I wonder if critical care syndromes are similar to that. So right now, if you're in the ICU, okay, you have a, a patient with abdominal sepsis with ARDS, and you have a patient with pneumonia who has ARDS, or you have a polytrauma, or you have a post-cardiac arrest patients, biomarkers could potentially change how we actually think about these patients and even how we think about their diagnoses. So instead of calling them abdominal sepsis with ARDS, we could talk about angiopoietin-2 dysregulation in three of these patients. We could talk about HLA-DR um, deficient immunosuppression in two of these patients. We can talk about how there's IL-1 dysregulation um, in one of these patients. We can talk about how there's an abdominal infection and a lung infection which require treatment in these patients. And I wonder if this uh, is a better way to classify our patients. And there's advantages to doing it this way. 
This is a more objective, mechanistic version of lumping. And it acknowledges the overlap in pathophysiology between our different syndromes. And finally, it starts to approach precision medicine a little bit more closely to the way the oncologists do it. There are also disadvantages to this. This may just be glorified repackaging of trading one set of vague definitions for another set of vague definitions. And this is particularly true until we identify the appropriate cutoffs for some of these biomarkers, until we actually figure out like what a high angiopoietin-2 is and what that means and what that cutoff is. Then I worry that we're at the risk of misclassification uh, bias in which we are actually inappropriately calling somebody elevated angiopoietin-2 when we don't actually know what an elevated angiopoietin-2 actually is. So cutoffs absolutely need to be defined. And it's not really clear which of these strategies is best. Is it a single biomarker? Is it a set of plasma biomarkers? Is it a set of BAL biomarkers? Is it for ARDS? Is it a transcriptomic endotype? None of that has been worked out. And finally, none of this is really operational. Okay, for a clinician at bedside who needs an answer relatively speedily, okay, getting, getting a uh, panel of biomarkers particularly or a transcriptomic endotype, it, it's not an easy ask because uh, a lot of these therapies and a lot of these interventions have to occur in a timely manner. And so this is really not operational yet. And now we'd like to ask another question to you in the audience. When commenting, again, please leave your city and country location. What do you think is the potential utility for biomarkers in the bedside in the pediatric ICU? Overall, I think we all agree that existing clinical care syndromes are poorly defined, and heterogeneity has doomed a lot of our trials. People have offered biomarkers as a way to reduce this heterogeneity. They're mechanistic. Okay, there's evidence of, potential evidence of endotypes in both adult and pediatric ARDS and both adult and pediatric sepsis. But I think we need to be conscious and talk about the limitations of biomarkers before we jump into trials using biomarkers. Uh, willy-nilly. I think we have to understand that the ARDS biomarkers, for example, are not specific to ARDS, okay, and that we're picking up uh, multi-system organ failure, innate immunity, and shock. And as long as we're aware of that, then we need to, uh, we need to use the biomarkers appropriately uh, given that limitation. It may still be useful for a specific biomarker targeting, a, um, uh, identifying a specific pathway if the therapy you're going to offer is also aimed at that pathway. That may, may, that may still make sense. And taking a step back, biomarkers may actually still be useful in redefining our clinical care, our critical care syndromes in a way that we're not currently accustomed to thinking about them. But it may improve, it may offer some uh, improvements relative to vague clinical definitions if we can get more precise with the biomarkers themselves. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today, a very thought-provoking um, review of the current state of um, uh, ARDS and sepsis research. It was, it was a pleasure being here. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.